This is an ABC podcast. It's mid-morning and I'm off to the headquarters of the Royal Flying Doctor Service in Brisbane. I've got a scheduled meeting with a couple of real dummies. Hello, Anthony Fennell here. This is Future Tense. Maybe I should rephrase what I just said. When I say dummies, I mean real dummies. That's not much better, is it? I don't mean staff, of course. I'm talking about dummy-type dummies, like mannequins, except the high-tech variety. Because today's program is all about simulation, about the way clever technology is being used in the medical world to train and to inform. Australia's a very remote place, very large place with a sparse population. When someone lives on a property a long way away from medical care, they need help. The Royal Flying Doctor Service um, is an amazing organisation. We provide emergency care and primary health care to a large slice of remote Australia. It's an iconic service, but its mission, to make emergency medical care available in Australia's outback and regional areas, is an expensive one. In Queensland, the RFDS has just set up a new immersive training facility and I'm off to meet Ronan Sweeney, their Manager of Clinical Training and Development. Ronan, hi. Hi Anthony, how are you? Good, thanks. This is the facility through here? Yes, it is. Please follow me, I'll bring you in. Okay. Ah, right, okay, uh, just explain this room to us. What are we looking at? Well, we're currently in the Clinical Innovation and Learning Centre, which is dedicated towards supporting interprofessional clinical training for our doctors and nurses. It's a highly immersive space, as you can see on the three walls. We have a ICU setting. We have a mannequin on a stretcher in the middle of the room, and it looks like a typical intensive care setting. It looks a bit like we're in a theatre, but the screen is all around. The screen just pans around the room. It does, so it's quite a, a reasonable sized room so it's about four meters in diameter and we have three walls uh, wrapped with the I guess live dynamic intensive care unit so you'll see people moving back and forth and it gives that sense of you know being in an actual healthcare clinical space. The vision displayed on the walls can be changed at the push of a button. You can find yourself in a farmhouse or on an airstrip or by the side of the road in the dusty outback. It's all about creating a tailored immersive training environment. We're trying to bridge this gap between asking people to suspend their disbelief and actually the real clinical setting. And we're finding already that we're we're gaining tremendous success and the feedback from participants is that this really does give them that extra bit of triggering so that their critical thinking processes are happening more fluently and uh, they're beginning to accept that this actually is more of a lifelike environment that they're experiencing. It's interactive as well, isn't it? Explain that uh, that side of it to us. Yeah, highly interactive. What I might do is just grab this tablet and it will allow me to uh, change the environment. So what I'm going to do is put up a typical, I guess, red dirt type of setting that we might attend and that will give you an idea of the type of background that we can we can create. So this is quite interesting. So I'll just open this one up. And what I can do over here is just show you on the other wall a button that will give us some vital signs. 
And this is really important in moving the patient journey from a, a treatment pathway point of view for our clinicians, and it's supporting their critical thinking. Um, so they may have performed interventions, now they get to see some of the vital signs. We also have a monitor up in the wall, so as they apply you know, a, a SATS monitor to check oxygenation or a non-invasive blood pressure cuff in the arm, we can begin to populate the other monitor up on the, up on the wall with that kind of data for them. So it really does start moving moving the treatment plan forward, which is really important. Now, it's easy to see how this type of high-tech simulated training environment can save time and money. But the elephant in the room is the dummy in the room, a freakish-looking mannequin with moving eyes, who really hasn't been taking care of himself. So this mannequin's quite unique because it has pupillary reaction. It can we can recreate, you know, bloodshot eyes, we can recreate a head injury, for example, where one pupil is blown and one pupil might be pinpoint, for example, or an opiate overdose, which opiates in the community unfortunately are becoming more prevalent. And so that would be a wonderful trigger for a clinician if they looked into their eyes, they would begin to get these cues that would give them an idea of what's wrong. Then as we move down the mannequin, we of course can talk through the mannequin, so we can be the voice, we can allow for that patient interaction if the patient has a level of consciousness. We can put blood fluid in the ears to create things like cerebrospinal fluid supporting possible head injury, a base of skull fracture. We can intubate the mannequin, we can put in advanced airways, we can also ventilate the patient. We can use a lot of our equipment that we carry, such as say the Hamilton ventilator. We can intubate and then connect the mannequin to the ventilator just as they would do for a real patient. We get rise and fall spontaneously in the chest so in other words this could be a breathing patient but who has a wheeze on their chest. It's not breathing at the moment I have to say but it was breathing before. It was. I just activated an apnea state so in other words the, the, the mannequin's not breathing intentionally so that would give a strong cue to our clinicians that they need to do something quickly. So I guess medical professionals are used to training with mannequins aren't they but this is a really this is a high-tech advanced mannequin isn't it? It is. It's all about supporting, I guess, the a broad range of interventions because we employ quick care trained uh, doctors and nurses, so they're highly experienced. They're really at the tip of the, the iceberg in terms of their experience and skill set. And so we need to be able to support that level of experience with an appropriate level of training and immersion in the clinical space. So there's a whole variety of tools we'll use, but this mannequin is a high fidelity mannequin, so it will represent many, many patient states. It can be, you know, quite challenging. They walk in and they're confronted with a particular environment, a wraparound environment in the immersive space. And it could be one mannequin patient, two mannequins patients. There could actually be a, th a person in the room who's playing the role of a family member as well. So while they're going through the training, though, uh, you or other people could be, could be monitoring the situation from outside. Exactly. So what we do is we have a, a one-way glass or mirror behind us, and that's where the educator team will sit. They're able to push the scenario forward. We're able to record the scenario. So, for example, if there were a couple of key moments in the scenario that we wanted to make some notes about to come back to in the debrief, because the debrief is really where we can consolidate all of those key learning outcomes. And that's where the best learning actually happens for the, the clinicians involved. And we can play back certain components of the video that was recorded, and it can be very powerful in supporting their learning. It's very easy when you're in a pressurized environment to 
to think you said or did something, but then to have, you know, the power of a, a video playback to demonstrate that, well, as much as, you know, you intended saying that, it didn't actually come out during that scenario. And it's not to be used as a stick to beat people. It's really a way of solving puzzles. My belly hurts. My chest is tight. My leg hurts. Ouch. Elsewhere in the building, I'm introduced to another mannequin with slightly different interactive functionality. All right, I can see the fingers in front of me moving. And you can move around the room. And I meet up with Trent Dean, the head of clinical governance. He's focused on utilising virtual reality technology to take future training beyond the immersive facility in Brisbane. So the virtual reality module we've built is to enable our clinical staff to use what's called a Hamilton ventilator. And we have these devices all across the state. So having a virtual reality module allows us to do the training without actually having the equipment out of service. And we can do this virtually, so we can set it up in any scenario across Queensland. And in the future, we'll be able to have people working in different bases uh, located at different parts of Queensland on the same scenario. So how does it work? So the module itself, you can see in front of you a headset and some hand controls. And so what you're doing is putting yourself in the environment of one of our aircraft. And you then have the ventilator in front of you and you get the full experience of the height, the sounds and the sensations of being in our aircraft and the ability then to immerse yourself in that environment and do the training module in a gamified way. So the benefit of using this virtual reality module is it gives the environment that the nurses and doctors will be working in with all the sounds and sensations, but we can do it in a confined space outside of the actual aircraft without having to reduce the time the aircraft's in the air, providing support to our clients and patients. I've just put the goggles on and I've got hand controls. Now if you look back to the screen, it should give you some instructions now. Oh, I see, okay. And uh, if I look around, it does look like I'm actually in inside the cabin of a small aeroplane. I can see propellers out the window if I look out the window. So it is, it is that immersive. Now I have to confess, I'm one of those people who always feels a bit disoriented when using virtual reality. But it's not hard to imagine how useful the equipment can be. The Flying Doctors are also experimenting with the use of augmented reality, using the HoloLens technology that we've featured on Future Tense previously. Ronan Sweeney again. A lot of our clinicians are obstetrics trained and this gives us an opportunity to give them a 3D virtual augmented reality experience. So that's really powerful because when they put the goggles on, they'll get to see a baby, for example, its position in the mother and then monitor it through the birth canal. And we can recreate obstetric emergencies, but they will get to see this in full 3D. They can walk around a mannequin and this is overlaid on the mannequin and they can see all of the anatomy in the uterus, which is a really powerful learning tool. It's very difficult with existing technologies to give clinicians that level of insight into how the baby is progressing down the birth canal. And the fact that we can actually recreate uh, obstetric emergencies will really give them a better understanding of what's actually happening in the abdomen of the expecting mother. Ronan Sweeney from the Royal Flying Doctor Service in Brisbane. A similar approach to aiding the visualisation of training and treatment is being undertaken by the Garvin Institute of Medical Research. Professor Sean O'Donoghue and his team have just secured more than $240,000 in funding 
to develop virtual reality tools for the treatment of cancer. One of the key problems we have in cancer research is trying to understand the actual molecular mechanisms that are occurring in a particular cancer. And this is a very new problem because we haven't had the opportunity until recently to sequence an individual patient's tumour. Now we can, and so we get this list of mutations that are occurring in that patient's cancer, that patient's tumour, and we have the opportunity to go and look and see what molecular consequences those mutations may have. But that process is complex, and ultimately, in many cases, you end up down at what I call the 3D level. You're dealing with protein structures. You're on the, on the level of proteins down the nanometer scale. And it's a kind of a strange scale that most people aren't used to, and particularly the clinicians that are expert at analyzing this data, many of them actually aren't expert at that 3D step because it's, it's a complex process, and we're, we're still in the process of optimizing it. And we are quite convinced that virtual reality would enable us to help in that last step for some of these diagnoses. So this would be directed toward clinicians, helping them to better visualise a cancer structure. But is it also for patients, for communication with patients? Absolutely, that's our plan. So what we want to do is build a system that's going to empower the researchers to first get clear in their own mind what they think is happening with a particular cancer. And that's going to be a system where they can sort of move the affected proteins around on a screen environment. And having done that, having, having come up with, with what, we, what I call a visual hypothesis for what's happening in that particular tumour, they'll be able to sort of store that. And from that point forward, they'll be able to use that visual hypothesis, this short storyboard showing the effect of that mutation. They'll be able to communicate that with their colleagues, with clinicians, and also with, uh, with patients, ultimately. And what will a patient get from this kind of technology that he or she wouldn't have got from simply talking to a clinician? Well, I think that I would really like to know what's going on with me for something wrong. If I had a cancer, for example, I personally would be the kind of person who'd want to really see what do we think is happening? Why is a certain treatment option being proposed? Some people, some of us would like to know as much as we can about the disease. So I think that's probably the main thing for the patient is just the opportunity to actually really interact with data that's driving treatment options. Uh, just a, another question, in terms of the visualisation, if I was a patient, how would that visualisation work for me? What would I be able to see? For an individual patient, in the ideal case, it would be someone who we, we would have had the opportunity to sequence their tumour. We can then target the system towards a set of proteins and mutations that are relevant to their, their particular cancer. If we can recognise from other signatures, it doesn't always require the genomic sequence. Sometimes we could recognise from indirect signatures what's going on. Yeah, you'd have the opportunity to actually sort of see what's happening inside, what's going wrong. And again, you have the opportunity to see a visual hypothesis about the treatment option that's being presented to you, how that's going to, it's believed to, um, to help. Your work will draw on the Aquaria web resource. Just explain to us what Aquaria is and what it provides. Aquaria is a system that my team has been building over the last nearly 10 years, actually. And it's an international collaboration with a bunch of groups, mostly in Europe and here in Australia. And what Aquaria does is it, it essentially consolidates the world's information about protein structures. I, I often describe it to people as a kind of like a Hubble telescope for proteins. So a Hubble telescope lets you see really distant galaxies. Aquaria lets you see every available model for every structure where we have information. So behind the interface, it's, it's got a sort of deceptively easy and simple to use interface, but there's actually 100 million three-dimensional model structures there. And uh, yeah, one of the challenges that we have is you know, just, just making that sort of large, complex amount of information available in an actually usable and useful form for someone like a clinician or a clinical researcher who may be overwhelmed by that. So the, the goal of the system here is to sort of take 
mutations from a cancer and then filter out, starting from this 100 million down to a very small subset of those that are likely to be implicated in what's going wrong in that cancer. And then putting them straight up in front of the clinician on their screen. And so then they're ready to start using those models to help clarify their hypotheses about what's happening on the molecular scale. Long term, what potential do you see for the use of virtual reality in this kind of field? I think it's got targeted uses. I've been working a lot in molecular graphics and we've been using many aspects of virtual reality really for quite some time. Now that it's becoming more mainstream and affordable, you know, people are obviously exploring with all kinds of opportunities. Personally, I'm more enthusiastic about augmented reality, which is a technology that's very close to, to virtual reality, but just slightly different. And we want to build our system to, to enable both kinds of interaction. Augmented reality being where you can layer a virtual reality over a, a real environment. Indeed, and people sometimes also call it mixed reality, sort of mixing the, the virtual world with the real world. And as I mentioned in the intro, you've just been awarded a, a funding grant. So where do you take the research from here? What are the next steps? Well, we've put together a really awesome team. So we're collaborating with CSRO. They have a virtual reality team there. And these are people that I've known for many years and been looking for a really good opportunity to collaborate with. And we're working with a, a team of medical researchers who are really facing this, this issue on a daily basis of, of looking at these molecular molecules that are going wrong in particular cancers. And we're trying to build something very practical that's going to be helpful. And the opportunity to uh, to bring this team together and to focus it on this, this problem is we're extremely grateful for that. We'll definitely have something up within 12 months. We're very optimistic. If the um, project is working out successfully, I think there's, there's also strong opportunities to get further funding and to really develop it into a, a tool that not only the clinicians here in, in Sydney can use, but can be used by, by researchers worldwide. Professor Sean O'Donoghue from the Garvin Institute of Medical Research. This is Future Tense. New ideas, new approaches, new technologies. The edge of change. And now to a problem that afflicts and affects a large section of the population. So chronic pain is very prevalent. It affects one in five people in Australia. It's one in three people over 65. And so I'm a chronic pain doctor. I see patients who have pain for more than three months. And his name is Dr Simon McCallum from the Precision Brain, Spine and Pain Centre in Melbourne. Chronic pain is very expensive. It's very difficult to treat. If it was easy, I wouldn't have a job. And the treatments out there are very varied and lots of them don't work for lots of people lots of the time. There aren't enough pain specialists in Australia. Not everybody with back and leg pain needs to see a pain specialist, but there are things that could be done to help these patients have better lives. And so this is where the, the idea, you know, how can you do that cheaply to a, to a mass audience? Well, let's use technology. And the tech he settled on was an app-based personal therapy platform developed by a group of researchers in Adelaide. Clavata has its roots in a national research initiative that involved a number of Australian universities and that explored how humans communicate. Now we do that on a daily basis, of course but our scientific understanding of it is quite poor. So at Clevata, we took the fruits of this scientific research and we created a new experience of how you interact with a computer. An experience that is more natural and that is more human-like. The product that we've built 
is one that anyone Clevitar is a platform that enables you to develop your own virtual humans for an app or for a website. So it's a platform that enables content creators to create content for a virtual human interface, which is then delivered to a consumer. And that consumer might be a patient or they might be a consumer of a service. But in our case, we've actually done quite a bit of work in health. So we've operated in that space for a while. Tanya Newhouse, Clevitar's CEO. The interactions that clinicians have with patients is conversationally oriented and it tends to be quite directed as well. So a clinician will ask questions of a patient and depending on those responses, it'll lead them down different pathways. And that sits really well with a decision tree conversational structure. And that's what we offer as a platform. It's a, it's a content management system that enables people like clinicians to develop their own content, which is then delivered through a virtual human to a patient group or to a consumer group. So that's how Clevitar works. So the responses that the avatar gives to a patient are based on the information that's fed in by a clinician originally, is that correct? That's absolutely right. In fact, it's a structured conversation. It's directed. A clinician will know that if a patient responds in this way, they're led down one of multiple pathways. It's personalised in the sense that it categorises patients into certain categories, as a clinician would do. They would typically say, well, this patient has these types of characteristics and so this is the treatment or therapy that they would be given. So it works in the same sort of way. Hi there. Great to meet you, Anthony. How are you doing today? That's good to hear. I'm feeling good too, now that you're here. But first I'd like to ask you some questions. Anthony, do you find yourself having the same types of What are the benefits for a company or a clinician in using this kind of technology with a patient or recommending it to a patient? What this does is enable another forum, another way of engaging with patients in between visits to a clinician. So, you know, in an ideal world, it would be almost a companion coach, someone with whom you can take with you and, and um, continue to work on the therapies that are being applied in the clinic. So that's the, the benefit also to the patient. But some people would think an avatar is going to be impersonal, that it, it's going to somehow be a lesser interaction than the kind of interaction that you would have with a, a real human being. But that's not necessarily mm. the case from research that's being done in the States, is it? Well, it has benefits and, and it has disadvantages. So certainly a virtual human's not going to have the same level of engagement or depth of interaction that a real human does, but it does have some real key benefits. And those would include that they can engage with a virtual human any time of the day or night, which is really helpful because sometimes if someone has sleep difficulties, well, they can deal with the virtual human any time. They are not judged by the virtual human. And this is actually probably where your comment really stems. So we find, because we, we have depression and anxiety content as well, we find that people are really willing to tell a virtual human stuff that they might not want to share with a real human because they know it's virtual. They know that this, that this character isn't actually going to judge them. And they're willing to disclose because of that. And the other reason, there's three really, is that they know that the virtual 
human's never going to get bored or sick of them. And so there's really interesting research that finds that people would rather deal with a virtual nurse, say, on discharge than a real nurse because they can ask for the same information again. So so what does that mean? And, and they know that that virtual human's not going to be um, impatient or bored. So there are definitely benefits. Tanya Newhouse. So let's quickly go back to Simon McCallum, our chronic pain doctor, to hear how his patients have responded to dealing with the simulated human, an avatar. So what we've done, we've started giving it to patients with back and, and leg pain and said, this is an app we've made, see how you go, tell us what you think. So we've given it to, as of this morning, 328. Some of them have downloaded it and haven't looked at it at all. Some of them have gone a long way through it and got right the end. So the app is written by a pain doctor, a physio, a psychologist and a neurosurgeon. And we really have tried to put a comprehensive pain re rehabilitation program into an app. And that'll take them a few weeks, maybe a few months to go through. And the feedback we've had so far is, you know, patients saying it's helpful, it's relaxing, it helps them pace their being more active. And this is music to a pain doctor's ears. It really is. Everyone's had pain and everyone gives other people advice about pain. And there's lots of wives tales out there and lots of these things are incorrect. So one of the real main aims of the app is to educate people why they have back pain, why they have leg pain, what can be done. It's helping them have an understanding of their chronic pain. Avatars for good, not just for games. But it occurs to me that the skill in crafting an engaging avatar might lie not just in making the engagement believable, but also comfortable. So how difficult is it to get the gestures, the speech, the look of the digital therapist just right? It has taken a long time and we're not there yet. We've got plenty more work to do. There's a phenomena in this field called the uncanny valley. And what that is, is when a cartoon character or a caricature is very human-like, people actually recoil from it. It kind of is a bit creepy. You may have seen this in your past in certain With movies. robotics. That's right, yes. And so we deliberately chose quite a cartoon-like characters. What that does is it sets a few things. It sets expectations that, oh, yes, I'm definitely dealing with a virtual human. I'm not dealing with a real human who's kind of got a sort of weird face. So we're setting expectations. It's appealing. It's familiar. Disney and Pixar, they all have a lot of great history and, and we're familiar with those as friendly, engaging and lovable characters. So the design of our character's took a lot of that into account and it has taken a few years of testing and perfecting and we're still working on it. You also asked about things like gestures and speech. Gestures also are really important. If a character is standing dead still, we think that they're very bored and actually almost a bit dead. But if they move too much, well, then that's kind of weird as well. And so there's this happy middle ground that happens with gestures that is really a lot of trial and error, I'd, I'd have to say, to get that right. And the speech, you also asked about speech. The speech that we use is synthetic. Synthetic speech has come a long way in the last five to 10 years, and it still has a, a long way to go. But Fortunately, we're really working off the back of those technologies. And what's the benefit of synthetically generated speech? What does it offer? 
Well, the main benefit is that any text that's entered by a content creator, so a, a clinician or whoever's creating the content, the, the script is able to be spoken instantaneously. So this this enables a lot of scale, whereas if you have a voice actor, well, then you need to get that voice actor to say every single thing that's said. But also, if you want to change the text, we need to get the same actor back. So it's, it's very, very limiting in terms of scaling and development. So synthetic speech is really a, a far better solution for this sort of option. And where do you see this approach going in the future? We really see it as being useful in any situation where conversations are at the heart of, I guess, an interaction. I mean, there's different ways that people interact with a service provider. They can interact through a website or through a portal, through reading things. But sometimes conversations are the best way to engage with an individual. A therapeutic conversation is one of those. So it's really got a a large potential, that's for sure. Tanya Newhouse from Clevertar. Visit the Future Tense website if you want further details about any of the initiatives we've mentioned today. Karen Savanovitz is my co-producer. I'm Anthony Fennell. Until next time, cheers. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.